we're, we're being sold these products by men, but they're carrying the cultural torch of like, what are the norms? How much inclusion is there? What should women be doing with their bodies? Welcome to the Solve Know Your Customer podcast. I'm Guy Horrocks. I'm one of the co-founders of Solve. We are the data engine for e-commerce and we help companies drive more value from their data. We're also the first data platform that's actually owned by our customers. If you're new to the podcast, we interview amazing entrepreneurs and CEOs about how they've grown their businesses and how they connect with their customers. This week, we're very excited to have our friend, Eva Goikachea, on the show. She's the founder and CEO of Maud, a modern sex essentials company. She's been featured in many publications, including Vogue, New York Times, Vanity Fair, Fast Company, Inc. and Nylon, to name a few. She recently brought on Dakota Johnson as her co-creative director, and she's just launched in Sephora as their first ever sexual wellness brand. So to kick things off, Eva, welcome to the podcast. Perhaps you can provide a little bit of a summary of what Maud is. Maud is a modern sexual wellness company that really is very much about inclusivity, both of age and gender. And so I think that's what differentiates us in the market, which we'll get much more into later as it relates to customer. Uh, background quickly, was a legislative aide in healthcare in my early 20s, then worked in consumer for many, many years, one of the first employees at Everlane, and have always just been really fascinated by products that make a difference, that can really like change culture. There are many, many examples in other industries, and I think in this one, design and inclusivity can really shift an entire cultural tone globally. That's awesome. You guys have done such an amazing job of building beautifully designed products and a beautiful brand as well, which um, it's very mainstream. And maybe could you just tell us a little bit about how you've approached that? Because there are a lot of people that are trying to disrupt the space and they're sort of taking uh, slightly um, less elegant approaches, I would say. That's a a very polite way to say it. Um, For us, it was about creating, really sitting almost at the intersection of, I wouldn't even say sexual wellness, because like the brand itself, while it's about sexual wellness, we really sit between personal care and beauty. So that same same elegance that people have taken to like personal care products, um, obviously the beauty industry is a little bit more far along in terms of taking that approach and making people feel like there's a ritual to their products. Um, The packaging can be beautiful. That's what you find in beauty. I think that's gone on to sort of take over personal care. And that's really what we're doing in sexual wellness. So if you're thinking about beautiful things, I think it's like, we are now quite literally Aesop's cousin because we have the same investors. But I think Aesop is a good way to think about how Maud lives in the universe and is, is just an everyday product that's still elevated. That's awesome. Um, and maybe just for, for the listeners, especially people who are looking to start startups or entrepreneurs, um, when I originally saw your invest materials, um, I was blown away. I think I've pretty much never seen anyone's invest materials look as beautifully designed as yours and had all this amazing data. It's just so thoughtful. Um, and I think there were sort of three things you shared with me. There was an invest, uh, investor deck there was um, a brand guidelines of how you're going to build the brand and who it sort of represents. And then there was like a research paper and the research sort of paper or research um, sort of PDF was this massively beautifully designed document, basically analyzing the whole industry, every single player in the industry, 
Um, you've done like surveys. Like, can you just give us a little bit of a, a sort of understanding of what went into the process leading up to, you know, I suppose like validating this idea you had and, and doing all this research, like how do you put that together? Because a lot of people have ideas and then it's a big step from that to launching a product and manufacturing things. So I think the first thing was just recognizing, you know, the the consumer landscape with sexual wellness has very much been up until this point, like you'll find in, if it's in a mainstream way, it's, it's, in, it's being sold in a drugstore. If it's... Um, you know, obviously we also think about like sex shops in a strip mall. So I think that there was this, this idea that these products were merchandised and marketed in these really old school ways. And, uh, and yet sexual wellness and just sex in general, obviously intimacy are things that are human. They're things we all talk about based with, et cetera. So I was like, wow, what a big disconnect between where you buy the product and how that makes you feel and like really how we want to feel. Uh, and then I needed to validate that idea. So I started to map out what does the landscape look like? It's heavily monopolized. There's Trojan, there's Durex, there's Lifestyles, and it's really globally monopolized. It's not just in the U.S. And then I started to think about, okay, how can we, how can we just take this to the streets and essentially ask a customer? And I put this survey up and we got like a thousand responses. Um, it was you know, in, in this really short period of time, and it was a really big cross-section of people. And they all said the same thing. It's like they were literally 18 to 81, I think, just represented men, women, other, every kind of, you know, gender and sort of sexual orientation that you can think of. And everyone said the same thing. I don't like current sexual wellness brands because they do not speak to me. The marketing is outdated. The messaging. So it was just this really easy thing to start to piece together and say, okay, I think we're on to something. Yeah, I think you. It, it, I think everyone can relate to uh, the existing players in the market. Um, if you think of uh, the Trojans and Durexes and all these kind of companies and their sort of consistent theme of brand and marketing, which is basically like Axe or Lynx body spray for men. You know, like it's sort of like this kind of crass, uh, you know, pretty male-dominated voice. I was surprised. We'll talk about Facebook in a second, but I was surprised in the early days when you had trouble. Um, getting your products and, and posts on on Facebook because of their their, their guidelines around um, I don't even know what to to basically prevent you guys selling on Facebook. So I think there's it's a little bit layered in how how these sort of regulations and rules work. Absolutely, are they sexist uh, in terms of the byproduct of the language? Yes, it's sexist, but I don't know that the intention was there. In a way, I think that the intention of the language. It just wasn't, it's very blanketed language. So like on Facebook, it might just say adult products and services, anything related to pleasure. So it's these really blanketed statements, also quite subjective. And so then what you end up with is that subjectively speaking, culturally speaking, we all sort of think um, that devices, and we can talk about this later, like we don't call them toys really, but devices are these these novelties and they're for pleasure. And so we, we end up, if we sell devices, we fall into that camp. Uh, but there is no, there is no nuance in this language in which it says yes. But a team of a hundred people reviewing are going to really consider the fact that you're saying something that's so much nicer and it's more modern. And there's none of that. And if it lands, you know, of course they're going to err on the side of caution. So if it really does land in front of somebody at Facebook who has to go through ads, they're going to say no. The weird part and the loophole, and then where it starts to get really sexist, is that there's room for. Um, anything that's a medical device. So we're allowed to advertise condoms. 
And then anything that's like a pharmaceutical drug has been advertised. And typically those are male brands, they're male focused. So then it just creates this inequity. But a lot of that is because of the language. There just needs to be more of a carve out for the differences between types of products under this very, very wide world of sex. Yeah. And I suppose this kind of leads into that, um, the, uh, I suppose, a related product to this podcast about knowing your customer, which we're going to go into detail on. Um, but uh, a starting point is is around diversification of getting to those customers. And I think, you know, the fact that you guys ran into some hurdles early on with Facebook blocking, taking down your account, you know, preventing posts, um, did that lead to you from day one thinking, okay, well, like, that's just one way to connect to a customer. We got to think outside the box. So I think my take has always been in a generalized way. There's like two kinds of companies. There are product companies and mission-based companies. When I say mission, I mean more around they're creating brand equity, brand affinity, and a story that is much deeper than just saying, here's a, here's a cool, innovative product. Um, and so my where I was where I thought that there was not only opportunity, but the disconnect was not in that sexual wellness brands before us were offering terrible product, but, but they weren't appealing to brand, like they weren't appealing to the values of their consumer. That's where the biggest disconnect is. And so what that means in terms of channels, even if we could go out and advertise on Facebook all day, every day with vibes, et cetera, one, society thinks of vibes again as a novelty. So we would just be up against that perception of being a sex toy brand. Two, you're not going to acquire a customer who cares about your values because are that, is that where they're really finding you is on, in these like channels? So we already knew going in that we were going to have to diversify because we wanted to find people who were like-minded, who cared about this, who were basically like the respondents of the survey who said, I want something more out of, out of this category. Yeah, I suppose like just continuing on this, on this sort of train of thought, like maybe you could just chat about the fact that you've been able to build really great community and it's, it's not overnight, you know, it has taken time. Um, but yeah, some of the things you've done, especially around, you know, PR, press, partnerships, even um, maybe chatting a little bit about your new mobile kind of pop-up at Ace Hotel is really cool as well. Yeah, I mean, so for us, it was, we're just going to have to appeal to like people's value set. We didn't even really think about demographics as much. Um, and so the language, the tone, the visuals of the brand have always been things that are really a cross section of people have liked. So anytime we do like additional brand marketing or PR, et cetera, it's kind of sky's the limit in terms of who we can reach out to because it seems to appeal to such a wide audience. Um, you know, Jeremiah, who joined me early, like really hit the ground running on three things that have been really intrinsic to the brand. The first one is social media and building our following um, and just building the visual language of the brand online. The second one is PR and making sure just to reach out to, to everybody far and wide to tell the story and doing it in-house because what it does is really like, it sets the tone for these relationships with these writers and these editors. And I always say that everybody wants to know a guy. And by that, it means like you want to be one phone call away from the source. And so it's really helpful to do PR in-house if you can, because the writer is like, I have a story, mods top of mind, I can get to them immediately. Um, and the third thing was really building content because that content engine that we have on the site generates so much more traffic and it builds out an ecosystem. That means that we live top of mind for people, you know, even when they're not shopping for a product. So it's, it was critical just to continue to build voice in these channels and to not just try to go the angle of like, we have to sell, 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 sell. Like, I just don't believe in that. I think people can see right through it. And I think it's a race to the bottom on price and where you are. And I think it's just a, 
It's a very myopic way to build a business. I think that's such an awesome like insight for people because I think there's so much pressure to boost sales. And I think you see this with like Black Friday and Cyber Monday and everyone's kind of like, it is a race to the bottom and discounts are sort of, you know, rule supreme. And I, I think um, it's you, you've baked in quality at a, a affordable price into the whole brand where, you know, it's not like you have to do these sort of 50% fire sales to try and get people through the door. And if you do, what we've seen on the data side is, quite often those people are getting big spikes, but then those customers are not coming back because they're not really the customer you wanted. So I think one of the examples here in the States that I think is so, so clear is like, we sort of call it like the J Crew effect. I mean, J Crew has gone through so much transformational change, right? Like in my lifetime, I've seen J Crew go from, you know, these like the sort of high-end basics of like the 90s to then the Gen Alliance period where it sort of sat between high fashion and weirdly like main, you know, sort of high street fashion, which was interesting. But ultimately the way that they did things was through sales. The way that they drove traffic and, uh, and really their revenue was by discounting in every single direction. And over time, as the brand had no more cultural relevance, the only thing people were engaging with because they had tarnished their own cultural res- relevance by not not only not evolving, but also by continuing to, to have sales, um, they were just left with like really, I would argue like lumpy data because you just don't know why customers are coming and, and you can't really ascertain like what you're supposed to do if you don't have like quality data. So we just don't believe in, we, we do discount like in terms of first purchase and uh, you know maybe once or twice a year to our existing core customers, but I just think it ultimately tell it's a, it's degrading. It degrades a brand and, and is it's a disservice in the long run. And there's a there's a fine balance because there are some brands that can still be highly coveted and like there's still cultural currency and they can have a sale and it feels special to get that that product, but that's so rare. Yeah. How does when you start thinking about data and like um, I suppose personalizing customer experiences and like um, understanding your customer and like trying to sort of build that relationship, that first party relationship. Um, could you explain like how you sort of think about some of that stuff? And obviously you've just launched um, retail uh, in Sephora with the launch of their whole sexual wellness, sexual well-being kind of category. You were, you know, the launch partner with, um, with um, uh, Sephora, which is amazing. Um, so you can touch on that as well, but like just sort of understanding how you collect and understand data as well as, you know, how, how that sort of leads to building better personalized experiences or like rewarding high value customers or sort of how you sort of think about that. And, and then maybe the second part, just talking about, well, how does that change when you don't have that data and you start selling through a third party, even if they're great, like Sephora, um, you're, you're going to probably struggle a little bit to connect to those users as, as easily as, as when you sell direct to consumer. Well, there's a lot to say here because I think we're, you know, we're still a really small team. It's been exciting to sort of work with Solve and we haven't even really ramped up. I think we're still pretty nascent in terms of our, um, just in terms of thinking through like cohorting and creating value within each of those cohorts and, and being able to speak to them just based on bandwidth. I mean, we're, even though we've raised a series A, we're still a small company. So I'm very excited to dig in. We do have customer personas and we we think we know, and and so we're we're excited to match the data with with what our, you know, our hypotheses are around each of the customers. But I would say that, for us, there's an even bigger opportunity 
than most brands because of what I was saying, which is like we're, we speak to a cross-section of people. 46% of our audience is over 40. Um, you know, they it's it's almost half and half male, female to the site. I, there's just like, it's really why. It's like 60% male of US. Um, when we launched internationally, international quickly became 5% of the business. Like there's just all of these ways in which we can grow and, and, and it's a lot, it's a lot to sort through. And I think it's a lot to sort of say like, what do we sort of tackle first in terms of data and customer? And what's really interesting in terms of a data point for us is that we've done surveys and we have a really, really extraordinarily high NPS, but people don't you know, not to be too funny here, but people don't have sex every day. And so they're like, we love mod. We love everything you do, but we don't have to come back for your product all the time. And so it creates this interesting sort of challenge with data and matching people's user behavior to say we have to sell to people so differently. It's not selling the brand with different terms. It's just selling at different times. And so that's, that's for us, like, it's not about changing our messaging or even our visuals per customer cohort. It's about like timing. And of course that's a real basic thing, but for us it's like critically important because we don't want to be really inefficient in getting people back to the site. If they simply say like, I'm single, I'm not dating right now, whatever the case is. Um, so data is super important to us and we're really excited to just like, I would say graduate and evolve how we think about data. That's awesome. And I suppose um, having to be so considered about timing is a really interesting one as well, because I think a lot of people don't often think about that of like the life cycle of a customer or like what they're doing. And when you think about um, that sort of buying cycle, um, is that how it sort of led into other products Like you've got other products that may not be direct kind of like you've got like massage oils, you've got like um, a candle product with burn, um, you know, there's there's ones that may sort of have a little bit more crossover towards sort of more general use and maybe not uh, necessarily used at it's for sex essentials kind of timing or anything like that like uh, you know is that some of the thought process behind that or can you reveal or like I don't know I think that I think for us uh, ultimately like and, and not just going into the category sermon I think it's it was it was about being top of mind like I'm saying but it was also about saying if you it's borrowing from, you know, I used the word ritual before. It's like borrowing from the ritual of how you approach like body care, for instance, or even skincare. I think sexual wellness, it's not just about, and we say this often, like it's not just about sex. It's not about what happens with sex. It's also about the like feeling prepared, setting the mood, using scent, creating like um, really beautiful products to use together. A lot of times we say share care. Um, and because like our, for instance, our daily body wash can also be used as a bubble bath. Like it was formulated for this, um, the soon to be released product that I thought I should mention to really like round out the conversation. I'm not going to, but I would say that it's like, it's about everydayness in your sex life, not meaning that you have sex every day, but just about creating everyday, you know, sort of ritual as it relates to that and kind of breaking down the barriers more of what we sort of think of as sex um, versus like what we just think of as like intimacy and taking care of yourself and your partner, uh, which is so much more broad than just sex. So it's like, we're, we're kind of chipping away at the walls of our like, um, our perceptions, but also our language through these products. And that's kind of, that's kind of really our, our goal is to just say like intimacy is a part of your life all the time. Um, yeah. And this new, yeah, this new product will like, shift that even more.
I'm sure Olivia, like post launch of this new product, will re-edit the podcast and then we'll <laughs> pretend that you launched it on the podcast. So it's fine. Um, you don't have to tell us, uh, but we'll we'll make it sound like you did tell us. Um, <laughs> so I suppose shifting out of like a, a, you know the the product side back into thinking about like customers, like customers, like this is quite intimate. Like the relationship, there's kind of like a built uh, a necessary. Um, necessity for like building trust with your customers with both the products the message like everything customer service but I think also like privacy is a really interesting one and I think um, you know the thing that always horrifies me is you go to Allbirds site and they have 51 third-party tracking pixels on their site and so their data is just given away to 51 different companies which is crazy and so I think like love to hear just your thoughts on kind of privacy and kind of how how important it is for a brand like, you know, Maud, as you're sort of building the relationship of trust with your customers. Well, so it's interesting because with the challenges of Facebook anyway for us, the, we already sort of like, it's not like we can just run with it. It's not like we think, well, if we can gather more data through, you know, pixel tracking, like we're going to get anywhere because we often just get shut down in these places anyway. I do want to make it very clear that we do run ads on Instagram and like you'll see them but typically for like the bath and body products, the candle, et cetera. So, so that's one thing to note. I think for us, when it comes to data, it's, it's so much less about um, third-party data. You're going to love this answer. It's so much less about third-party data because I think there are too many assumptions that happen in those behaviors. And for us, it's more about like first-party first data and getting our customer to be telling us more, which there's a lot of room for us to grow there and, and understanding their behaviors because you have to sort of reconcile if they say they like the brand, they just, what they need from you is just to either make products that they need and continue to expand upon that like in two weeks or just, um, just sort of be there at the right time. And I would argue that because we have this content engine, we send out content regularly and we have a pretty big list, they already know about us. So is it going to help them to be getting an ad every single place that they go? No, not necessarily. What's going to be better is that we just like stay true to who we are, keep, you know, the, the product assortment as something that they care about, and then um, just be adding value in every possible way that we can, whether that's cultivating the, like loyalty, like you said, or in creating content they want to read. Yeah. And there's no one right answer ever, but, um, you got the answer right, which is first-party data is a lot more important than <laughs> slimy third-party data. As a first-party data platform, uh, I can confirm that that was the correct answer. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think, um, uh, you know, we often talk about, you know, companies like Glossier who, you know, Emily Weiss did such an amazing job building that community. Um, and I say community probably more so than even the brand. Um, you know, she built that huge following on Into the Gloss and kind of used that kind of information and following to get get feedback from customers about what they wanted and then selling those products that they felt like they were missing back into the audience and it was sort of this amazing circular um kind of function of people giving you amazing data about hey like you know we find all the lip glosses really you know slimy or whatever it might be and then she launches her new um you know lip gloss and suddenly you've got you know a hundred thousand customers because you know the, what they want. So I think that's kind of like the perfect simple sort of example of someone doing such a great job of kind of knowing the customer and then selling products into that customer base of what they think is missing and, and what customers are asking for. So um, yeah, it's cool to kind of hear, hear how you guys are doing it in a sort of, I suppose, a very considered fashion. 
Um, it's interesting because I we could have an entire podcast about Glossier. I have like I have a lot of thoughts around that. Um, I think the long and the short of it for me is obviously they did do an amazing job around data and they built quite a big tech team and they really optimized the heck out of like the site and they made things really personalized and they invested so heavily in that. But what was interesting is that simultaneously their brand was becoming outdated and passe. And it says a lot about, and, and I always think about Glossier from the perspective of like, if they had really embedded and woven more brand storytelling on the site instead of optimizing for sales and relying on the external brand vision to carry, would it have been easier for them to be nimble and continuing to be relevant? So really interesting brand because it's like two very different sort of approaches, the offline versus online, for instance, or so social versus the selling. And we often, we often kind of refer to Glossier as like the perfect example of of both the good and bad on the data side, because they had tons of third-party pixels, uh, a lot of fragmentation of their data, and then they spent a lot of money kind of consolidating it all. And then they rebuilt their stack a couple of times. And then I think two years ago, they they built a, a tech team out in Seattle where they hired a bunch of um, smart kind of um, people out of Amazon Web Service and basically acquired the Amazon Web Service team. So it's an expensive route to go where, you know, that's the kind of like the good side is like, hey, they knew their customer in the early days and did a great job building community um, using that data to kind of like build product and experiences. And the bad side was like an actual fact, like they had to rebuild their tech stack multiple times. And I think if you look at some of the basic things you might want to do with data, um, you know, even some of these big brands like Allbirds and Glossier and stuff are actually, it's actually, it's the old model of like, let's daisy chain 50 platforms and put it into a data warehouse and instead of saying, hey, like, let's capture all the data ourselves in one place that we own, and then we're not having to give away all our data to these 50 companies. So I, I always think of, like, the good and bad of, of, of the Glossier story. Um, I suppose, like, I'd love to just sort of change tech a little bit and, you know, talk about a little bit more controversial side of the industry, of the fact that a lot, if not a majority, of founders and female-focused or sex essentials are male. It is sort of startling when you see the the founders and like the founders suddenly all look identical. Um, and so it's pretty interesting. That's sort of the first point that's interesting. The second point is like a bunch of these companies have tried to rip off products of yours. I've seen multiple ones, especially with Vibe, which is a very unique um, designed um, product. Um, and suddenly they pop up with kind of cheap knockoffs of that. Um, but yeah, I'd love to love to kind of hear your, your thoughts on it. I mean, it's it's like beyond culturally ugly. Like their brands are effing ugly. So I think, I think there's something there too, which is really offensive when they rip off the vibe and turn it into like an orange carrot, which has happened. Um, yeah, I, I know, I know. I think I think what's really fascinating about a lot of these companies, especially when they're device focused, is that they they tactically speaking go after influencers so heavily and they go after influencer and user-generated content with people that are female identifying and people of color and lgbtqia like the opposite of what they are which is cis white typically heterosexual males and so it's this money grab that is so obvious to anybody who knows just a little bit about these companies um, but unfortunately like the customer doesn't necessarily dig into who the founders are because they're they're just seeing what's happening on social and they believe the brand. And so fundamentally, I think that it just, what it does is it carries on the legacy of the brand being dominated by men. 
And where that's really like critically scary in a way is that we're then just like, we're continuing to all just be, we're, we're being sold these products by men, but they're carrying the cultural torch of like, what are the norms? How much inclusion is there? What should women be doing with their bodies? I mean, if you think about it, it's like so beyond backwards and so beyond antiquated that there are still men telling us what we should do with our bodies that it's, it's, it's just, it's mind boggling. So I, I'm not, I'm not the angry female founder Obviously, plenty of people will think this because I will go off on social media, but I'm not the angry female founder who's personally offended. I just think it's really fascinating that it affects us all and that we're not having more of a discussion around who should tell us where to be and who should tell us what to do with our own bodies and why are we still having to have this conversation in 2022? Uh, I think just on the side of product and ripping off product, it's lazy. I mean, the reality is there are some, there was a recent one, who their entire business model is taking products to market that they found on Alibaba. And yet they're backed by, you said, like what you said, these big venture funds, the typical consumer funds. And to me, I'm like, where's the IP in all of this? What are you actually investing in? What a weird, what a weird investment. <laughs> like there's no innovation. There's so much laziness. There's erasure of other people. Like what a bizarre. Yeah. Is this company going to be around in five, 10 years time? Probably not. You know, like it's, it is, it is interesting. I think when you start looking at the industry that you're trying to disrupt, when we talk about the Trojans and Durex and all these kind of, they're pretty ugly branded companies. Like the design's horrible. The messaging's pretty sexist in a lot of places and like pretty horrible. Like you think, well, at least these, these sort of startups that are going to disrupt the space, like they're going to be better. And then I think when I looked through a lot of those companies that have tried to rip you off, um, the messaging is actually worse than Trojan and Durex. I couldn't believe it. I think Olivia and I went through a few of them um, this week. And, you know, some of it's just like, you can't even like look at the site. It's so cringe. It's sort of, I don't know, um, it's like a 14-year-old boy's like kind of like, you know, done it in a frat house and like he's going to start selling women's, you know, products and stuff. It's just crazy. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's disappointing to see um, the laziness and copying, but it's also like, yeah, it's, um, I think I, I felt the same way early days when people started sort of ripping off Glossier and you sort of see companies come in and you're like, you've got, you can build any type of brand when you start a cosmetics company, you know, and you can appeal to anything like, and you're going to rip off, you know, one of the, the sort of hero kind of female founders of the space who's disrupting the space as a male company and copy like all the pink products and like all this sort of stuff. It just, yeah, it just seems like totally uh, backward, but um, it's cool to see you dropping the hammer on some of these people and uh, keeping them accountable. <laughs> I, you know what? Um, I, I basically emailed the investors and they got them to take it down. So at least they did the right thing. I don't think anybody in this day and age wants a woman of color coming after you to say that a white male ripped them off. And I'm willing to, to like die on the hill for this because ultimately it's not about me as a founder. It's about representation in the industry and representation for everyone to feel like they can make a choice around their own bodies. Like my mom handed me our bodies ourselves when I was five years old. Like I was born to fight this fight. And so I'm going to take it all the way. And um, it's very misquoted often. They say like, rarely does a you know well-behaved woman make history. It was actually meant to say like women should behave. Um, but to quote it, like I'm not going down and like quietly. I, I'm, I'm going to like continue to fight, fight for this. So, but more than that, like, God damn it, stop making the industry ugly. Like, it's just ugly. It's, it's like, the marketing is gross. The packaging is gross. It's just like, it, it really offends all of my, my 
aesthetic sensibilities. So, yeah, if they <laughs> if they copied you and made it actually look good, then maybe it wouldn't be so offensive. But yeah, it's you're gonna rip off my product and then make it horrible. What you know, amazing. Um, well, yeah, thank you so much for joining and all these um, insights and tips and just hearing your stories. So 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 great. I suppose like as a parting word, like if if people are listening and they're sort of working on their startup and you know, like it's, it, everything seems overwhelming and ROAS is going down. They can't acquire customers. It's hard to find staff. The product is shipping supply chain issues. Like there's so many things that you guys have to deal with um, on a daily basis. Um, I don't know if there's any parting wisdom you can give uh, the next founders. I mean, my parting advice for anybody that's going to start a business really goes back to really what your podcast is about, which is data and research. I think if you if you think that you can break into an industry and make it, especially given the fact that the odds are against you, most startups fail, et cetera, et cetera, um, you better ultimately believe that the data that you've sourced, the, the, re, you know, the research that you've done is strong enough to make a case for why you should exist. It's not about you as a founder. It is very much about like the industry and the audience and the opportunity to serve the customer. So those are my parting words is like, just do your damn homework. Don't be lazy. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I think a lot of people think of this kind of like, how am I going to create this million dollar idea? And, um, you know, in actual fact, it's, it's finding that industry you love and, and trying to map that customer journey and, and serving the customer. I love that. Um, well, thank you so much. It's an honor and privilege to have you on our second episode. Um, and for people that are interested in Eva or Maud, um, we'll put a bunch of links there. Um, they've been featured in everything from uh, Vanity Fair to Vogue magazine, um, TechCrunch, Fast Company, you name it. Um, so um, they're definitely a company on the rise and they've got an awesome team as well, uh, knowing some of the people that we've dealt with, like Vadim and stuff. It's, it's so cool. So um, uh, very, very, very humbled to have you on and thank you very much. Thank you very much.